Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again, everybody. It's lovely to have you back with us. Before we start, I just wanted to quickly mention, Mark, the good news after the Titanic episode, those three puppies that got saved. Couldn't, I couldn't not start with that. I asked people to let us know and they did. I was so pleased. Yeah, a couple of people got in touch, I think, with the same information. So a huge thank you. It was a massive relief to us. We won't think about all of the other puppies and dogs that probably perished. We'll just think about the three that survived because we needed a happy ending. That's all we need to remember, yeah. We really did. Um, And thank you for everybody who got in touch, actually, because it was a departure, that episode, and it's it's gone down really didn't want to say that uh, no it's gone let's, down, but let's it's... rephrase that people enjoyed it people have been nice people enjoyed it. it they found it <laughs> informative and interesting well. <laughs> let's move on uh let's thank our most recent patreon supporters and bethan yeah did you want to do the honors yes please so um huge thank yous to our newest patreon supporters helen sonia the blood angel turner fiona mack diane lilly and compare and Vicky Forbes. Thank you, everybody. And of course, thanks to our existing Patreon supporters. If you sign up to our most popular tier on Patreon, then you gain immediate access to 25 episodes of Crime Wave. So that's our fortnightly Patreon exclusive podcast in which we discuss topical true crime stories that make the news and sometimes not even true crime, just things that are in the news that we're interested in. Each of those episodes is, what, 30 to 40 minutes long, I think. And yeah. it's definitely true, isn't it? We You get a real candid version of me and Mark. You get a little bit more real and a little bit less scripted. Yeah, you get the real us on Seeing Red, but we probably have more opportunity to go off-piste a little bit. You also gain immediate access to our back catalogue of 40-something bonus episodes, including our two-parter on Jimmy Savile, our episodes on The Suffolk Strangler, X Factor contestant Danny Tetley, that was a rough one. There's also our Patreon book club, where we meet online every sort of three months or so, and we discuss a true crime book. Uh, You also gain access to competitions, and we release ad and sponsor-free episodes of Seeing Red early for Patreon supporters. And of course, your support makes a massive difference to us and the show, and it means that we can continue to invest in providing great content, which keeps the show alive. Over a thousand of you have signed up to support us on Patreon since we started Seeing Red, which is just incredible. There's no minimum term, so you can sign up and then cancel your subscription at any time as well. And signing up just takes two minutes and your support, as I said earlier, it makes a massive difference to us. So all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. I'd love to just say as well, we've got our live crime wave coming up, which we don't do very often. But we've actually opened that up to everybody as well. So that's this Friday. So if you're listening to this on release, Mark, I'm going to get you to share the link again, maybe on the day this comes out or something like that so people can sign up. But we're really looking forward to that because it's your chance to kind of see us live doing it. Yeah, we've done it before and it was really enjoyable. So come along to that. I'll pop a link in the show notes. Before we come on to today's episode, we are very nearly there, I promise. I just wanted to give a massive thank you, a big shout out to our friend Adam over at the UK True Crime Podcast. Um, Not for his podcast, actually for his gin. Uh, So Adam has teamed up with Percy Distillery in Scotland, in his native Scotland, and he has come up with his own gin. It's called Bloodhound Gin, which has been inspired by his podcast. And he sent me a bottle of that a couple of weeks ago. 
Of course, I've demolished most of it now. If you are looking to try a new gin, one with hints of citrus and warming spices, honestly, I really recommend this. It's best with a really nice light tonic. The gin kind of does the talking with this one. Uh, so if you wanted to check it out, um, then yeah, just head over to percydistillery.com. So that's Percy, that's P-E-R-S-I, distillery, D-I-S-T-I-L-L-E-R-Y. Oh, you missed out the E then, P-E-R-S-I-E. S-I-E, Percy Distillery. (laughs) Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. And poor Adam, I've fucked it up. Use code code UKTC for 10% off. So that's percydistillery.com. Use code UKTC. And I will put a link in the show notes that would definitely be correct. Okay, on with today's episode. It's an uncomfortable and deeply troubling fact of life, but some of the most heinous and unspeakable crimes of the century have been committed by children. Consider victims such as James Bolger, Alicia McPhail and Ollie Stevens, innocent children whose lives were brutally cut short by other children. It is rare for children to intentionally kill another person, and when it does occur there are usually underlying factors that contribute towards that behaviour. Some possible reasons why a child may kill include exposure to violence at a young age, abuse or neglect, mental illness, trauma or social and environmental factors such as poverty or living in a violent community. Additionally, some children may be influenced by peer pressure or may have difficulty controlling their emotions and impulses which can then lead to aggressive or violent behaviour. It's important to note that each case is unique and a thorough evaluation of the child's individual circumstances is necessary in order to understand the underlying factors contributing to the behaviour. Treatment and interventions may involve therapy, counselling and other forms of support to address the underlying issue and prevent future violence. However, murders perpetrated by children still occur and oftentimes owing to the child's inherent lack of life experience and sense of empathy their acts can be astonishingly brutal and cruel, which I just thought was such an interesting point because children have to be quite self-centred, don't they, as they grow up, as they form their own sense of self and identity. It is important that they put themselves first and they do do that, but it can result in a a distinct lack of empathy, which can be dangerous in, in the wrong hands. And that's it. Like you don't properly gain empathy for for a few years in your early childhood. I can't. I don't know the facts for definite, but I know that it's something you try and teach as a parent. You try and teach your child some empathy, and you try and encourage. How does that make you feel? How do you think it makes the other person feel? And encouraging them to do some good deeds because it makes them feel good to see someone else happy. But inherently, they're just selfish. If if one of my children has an ice cream or a chocolate bar. And you ask them to share it with the other one is unlikely that they're going to want to do that. They just they don't think of it as, well, both of us can enjoy something. There is no chance, you know, if they want that toy, they're going to snatch until they learn not to. And the only reason they learn not to is because people have told them that it's not a nice thing to do. They don't not do it because they think it's a, and you know, it's a better way to behave. They just do it because that's what they're taught. And you almost have to like train them to to behave in the way that society will expect so that then when they start to gain empathy and to develop those social skills they've already got that background but yeah and I think that's it when you when you think of kids pulling the wings off of flies or the legs off of spiders it's not necessarily 
that they've got any sort of horrible feeling. It's just that they genuinely don't even think that that would be a mean thing to do or it'd be painful. But it's when they get to an older age where they should have more of an idea of that and then they do things that are more sadistic. It's, I guess it also feels worse, doesn't it? Because they're all cute and innocent and chubby-cheeked. I think that's it, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, the whole kind of developmental stages of children is fascinating and I'm, I don't really know much about it at all. You'll know more about it than me. But yeah, it just made me think, actually, this could be dangerous in, if other factors come into play as well. Uh, to to run alongside that lack of empathy. This week we're going to visit our friendly neighbours in the Republic of Ireland to take a deep dive into one such case of child-on-child violence. The tale begins in 2006 in Novokuznetsk, a large industrial city situated in southwestern Siberia in Russia. An Irish woman named Geraldine Kriegel and her French-born husband Patrick Kriegel travelled to Novokuznetsk and visited the local orphanage where they quickly became smitten with a two-year-old recently orphaned girl named Anastasia. Geraldine and Patrick made a snap decision to adopt Anastasia and after completing the required documentation and following all of the legal process in Russia, which was probably pretty minimal, even though this was 2006, Anastasia officially became their daughter. Geraldine Kriegel was a government worker for Ireland's Transportation Department, and Patrick was a school teacher. The couple lived in Lucan, a small town located about seven miles west of Dublin, and after arriving back in Lucan with their two-year-old newly adoptive daughter in tow, this couple devoted all of their time, energy and love in trying to help young Anastasia adapt to a new life and her forever home. Neither Geraldine or Patrick had any cultural ties to Russia whatsoever, but they decided to allow Anastasia, or Anna as she soon became known, to maintain her Russian roots and observe all of her cultural traditions. In her early years, Anna grew to be happy and a feisty little girl. She possessed seemingly unlimited confidence and was always a centre of attention. She had natural athletic ability and developed a passion for swimming, dancing and gymnastics. When she began primary school, she immediately began to make friends and she also began to show real academic promise. However, when Anna reached early adolescence, things began to change. At the age of 11, Anna developed a large tumour deep inside her right ear, which her doctors decided had to be removed. The major operation cost Anna half of her hearing ability, and for the remainder of her life she suffered from partial deafness. Her vision began to deteriorate not long after, and it was discovered that the tumour had caused damage to her optic nerves, leaving her severely short-sighted too. Well, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? Because she's only 11 and she's had this life where she's become really interested in all these different sports. And then these two things are going to really impact that. Also, then to start finding that you're short sighted as well, you've got to adjust to wearing glasses or. Oh, it's and you just know how cruel really kids sad, can be. Isn't it? I've got a real downer on kids in this episode, but you know how cruel they can be. And for this to coincide with adolescence as well, a real seminal time in her life. Really, really tricky. Oh, God. And then we're talking, we're talking about child development. And up until the age of two, Anastasia had been in an orphanage and would have been deprived of love and affection and attention and affirmation. So you can probably see where this is going if you're not familiar with the story but actually you'd be wrong because Anna is absolutely going to be the victim in today's case not the perpetrator. 
A few years later, when Anna entered her early teenage years, she was diagnosed with scoliosis, a condition that causes curvature of the spine and a reduced range of movement in the joints. So as if it couldn't get any worse for her, it did at the age of 13. This painful disease prevented Anna from pursuing her biggest passion in life, which of course was sport. And to make matters worse, at this time, Anna was struggling academically at school, which isn't surprising because she's severely short-sighted, she's hearing impaired, that's going to be having a a huge impact on her ability to learn. And her teachers theorised that she had moderate learning difficulties at this point and therefore needed additional support. Anna also found herself the victim of relentless and brutal bullying at school. She was mocked for being the tallest girl in her year. Despite her young age, she stood at five or eight inches tall. And other girls who were clearly jealous of her Russian-born beauty berated her for being ugly. It's just, oh, it makes me so angry. And whenever we talk about bullying and whenever we talk about bullies and stuff, it just makes me so cross because you just wish you could step into that scenario and say to this young girl, do you know what? You're five foot eight. That is amazing. You could be a model. You could be like, you have to be that tall to be in this profession or that profession. This is amazing. Like you look different. You're unique. You're special. Not to be bullied. And it is bullied for being different and kids will just pick up, pick up on any old shit to just have a target in mind. So yeah, she's very much a target at that school. Eventually, Anna's classmates discovered that she was adopted and they also then began mercilessly mocking her for not having what they called real parents, cruelly telling her that she was abandoned as a baby for being ugly and unlovable. And again, just I won't labour the point, but you know what it's like when when you're that age and someone's telling you that on a daily basis, you're going to start to believe it. These verbal attacks occurred both personally, during school hours and also via social media and on Anna's YouTube channel. Anna adored YouTube and was passionate about content creation. Like nearly every other teenager, she used a staggering number of social media apps, including Instagram, Facebook and Snapchat. However, her favourite by far was YouTube. She would make videos about dancing, clothes and makeup for her hundred or so subscribers. And although the videos attracted many pleasant comments, they also brought despicable abuse, poisonous barbs and even violent threats to Anna. One viewer told her to go die. Another said they would have her executed. And others urged her to take her own life. I mean, fucking hell, just kids can be so cruel. This, I mean, Anna's case is just one that's always really stuck in my mind and I just absolutely hate it. And it's because of this absolute cruelty. That's the only word for it. This, There is just no need for any of this. You don't want to be friends with someone, don't be friends with someone. Don't play with them, don't hang out with them, but you don't need to be this vicious and just so nasty and exactly that yeah. cruel to this person. Yeah, and many of the vicious comments were posted by Anna's own classmates. So it wasn't random people on social media, it was her own classmates. Anna's parents, Geraldine and Patrick, took screenshots of the abuse and forwarded them onto the head teacher at Anna's school. But sadly, very little action was taken and the abuse only intensified. On one occasion, as Anna walked home from supervising a children's disco at her local community centre, she was approached on the street by four of her male classmates. They blocked her escape and hurled insults at her, with one of them angrily demanding sex before groping her. Anna was able to break free from the boys and run away, only to return home badly shaken and hysterical. Geraldine and Patrick did the right thing and reported this sexual assault to the police. 
However, the boy who groped Anna only received an official police caution and the school again failed to take any preventative action to put a stop to Anna's daily torrent of abuse. It's understood that Anna tried her best to remain positive and optimistic despite her mounting health issues and the relentless bullying that she was subjected to. But as time went on, she gradually fell into a deep depression. Her self-confidence took a nosedive and she became more reclusive and introverted. Hardly a surprise. In addition to this, Anna began to exhibit some rather strange and unsettling behaviours. She was harshly suspended from school for painting a black eye on herself, an act which Geraldine believes was Anna's way of expressing the deep emotional pain she was feeling whilst having nobody at the school who was willing to properly listen to help her. Anna was suspended again when she finally snapped and attacked one of her bullies, which resulted in a serious physical altercation. For her parents, Anna's unfair treatment from the school was infuriating. They were perfectly willing to punish her, but they rarely even looked up when Anna herself was being bullied. So it's almost like not only have the kids got it in for her, it's almost like there's this systemic problem within the school that the school has it in for her too. Yeah, and that's just horrendous. It should be the same treatment for everybody. Anybody who is caught being violent in any way should be treated the same. Not everything that's done to her badly, but then as soon as she retaliates, she gets classed as the person who's been violent like yeah yeah it's just not fair at all it was later discovered that anna had been setting up fake social media accounts to send abusive messages to herself so it was quite bizarre behavior following this discovery as well as mounting concerns for anna's rapidly deteriorating mental state geraldine demanded that her adoptive daughter hand over all of her login details for her social media and email accounts By now, Anna was 14 years old and required weekly therapy sessions in order to help her deal with her problems. So I'm really not judging her in in setting up those fake social media accounts and sending abusive messages to herself. I think it's similar to the black eye thing, painting a black eye on her. It's her kind of screaming for help that this is bad and I need to make it worse, perhaps, so that people do take notice. But even without her making it worse, it's still horrific. Yeah, I think that you've hit the nail on the head there. I think it's... Um, they're not paying enough attention. If I make this a little bit worse, they should and they should listen. They should pay attention. But they should have listened at the beginning. Yeah, and that what she's doing is completely normal behaviour for a fourteen-year-old girl, particularly a girl who's going through something like this. The morning of Monday, the fourteenth of May in two thousand and eighteen, began as normal. Anna and Geraldine woke up early and had breakfast together in the kitchen. As they chatted about the day ahead, Anna reminded her adoptive mother that she was leaving school early at 2.30 to go to a therapy session in Lucan and would need a note from Geraldine, excusing her from that afternoon's classes. Geraldine wrote the note, gave Anna a kiss goodbye and watched as she left the house to go to school. At 2.30 that afternoon, Anna left her class and attended her therapy session as planned. When this session ended at 4 o'clock, Anna went home and headed up to her bedroom. She then sent a text message to Geraldine asking to speak to her. At the time, Geraldine was in a meeting at work, but replied by text saying she would call Anna as soon as she could. At five to five that afternoon, Anna's father Patrick was in the garden, relaxing in the late afternoon sun, when he heard the doorbell ring. At the door stood a 13-year-old boy. Patrick didn't know the boy's name, but vaguely recognised him as one of Anna's classmates. The boy greeted Patrick politely and asked if he could speak to Anna. 
Now, due to the boy's age, we are legally restricted from revealing his name, so for the purposes of this story, we'll be referring to him as Boy B from here on in, and a Boy A does come into it. Patrick would later describe the look of bewildered confusion on Anna's face when he told her that Boy B was at the door asking to see her. Whilst they knew each other from school, they were not friends. She had no friends at all. Anna went to the door regardless and Patrick observed them having a hushed conversation. After a few moments of this, Anna left Boy B standing at the door, went back to her room to grab a hoodie before putting it on and then heading back to the front door. She told Patrick that she was heading out to St Catherine's Park, a local park and nature reserve, but said that she wouldn't be long. Patrick reminded Anna that she had an exam the following morning and that she needed to study. Anna acknowledged him, agreed not to stay out late, gave him a big smile, then left the house with Boy B. From the lounge window, Patrick watched Anna and Boy B walk away from the house in the direction of the park. The pair didn't appear to be talking or smiling, and Patrick thought it was odd that Boy B appeared to be striding quickly ahead, with Anna trailing behind, trying to keep up. Nevertheless, Patrick wasn't altogether too worried at first. If anything, he felt somewhat encouraged that Anna, who had suffered immeasurably and had become almost completely reclusive, was beginning to socialise again, and so he went back to the garden and continued relaxing in the sun. It's such a hard one, isn't it? Because you don't know what's going on, but equally you want to encourage her to be having friends again. Even if it makes you feel a little bit uneasy, you're like, oh, but someone's come to knock for her. It's the first time in ages, or first time ever, potentially. And she's 14 oh, years old, him. and you're going to be really sensitive to her age and mm-hmm. probably not want to pry and not want to ask too many you questions. You don't want to say the wrong thing, yeah. No, and embarrass her. So, um, completely understandable. And yeah, I think he was just so hopeful that this was the turn of the tide. Half an hour later, Geraldine returned home from work. In stark contrast to her husband's nonchalance, when Geraldine was told that Anna had left the house with Boy B, she was immediately concerned. Neither Patrick nor Geraldine knew anything about Boy B. Furthermore, as Geraldine reasoned, nobody ever called for Anna, which makes me incredibly sad. A desperate sense of dread was beginning to overwhelm Geraldine now. She couldn't explain it, but she knew in an instant that something was horribly wrong. She tried numerous times to call Anna's phone, but it just rang out. Just after 5.30pm, Geraldine texted Anna, ordering her to come home immediately, and threatened to call the police if she didn't. As she anxiously waited any kind of response from her daughter, Geraldine walked to St Catherine's Park to see if she could see any sign of her, but she found nothing. Geraldine went home and got in her car before driving aimlessly around the local town, hoping to spot her daughter. But after more than an hour of fruitless searching, she returned home. By now, darkness was beginning to fall and there had been no word from Anna. Therefore, the decision was made to report Anna's disappearance to the police. Initially, the police didn't treat Anna's disappearance as an emergency. However, due to her young age, they did agree to open an investigation and allocated a handful of officers to the case. Their first course of action was to identify Boy B and to find him as soon as possible, as he was logically the last known person to have seen her. Patrick and Geraldine knew the boy, but only vaguely. They didn't know his full name or where he lived, only that he attended the same school as Anna. Using Geraldine and Patrick's description of the boy, the police went through all of the males in Anna's school year one by one. Via process of elimination, they were successful in ascertaining Boy B's full name and address, and officers were sent to his house to question him. Boy B calmly and willingly explained to the police that he had indeed called for Anna earlier that day, 
but had left her alone in the park just after 20 to 6 to return to his house. There were no glaring inconsistencies in his story and nothing to suggest that he was lying, so the officers thanked him for his help and left his house. It's so hard, isn't it, when you've got um, like hindsight and stuff, but of course... They're not like they ask the questions. What what are they going to do else otherwise? There's there's nothing else to say. Yeah, they're not going to get a warrant to search his house or confiscate his clothes and see stuff and mobile phone stuff like that. So yeah, it is difficult. They've asked they the questions did, and that's that. Yeah, and and Anna was I hate to use the term, but she was very troubled. I suppose the police have seen it all, haven't they? And this probably isn't an uncommon thing for a very troubled 14-year-old girl to, to do, to just disappear for a little while and then usually come back. But sadly, that wasn't going to be the case here. Geraldine and Patrick recruited all of their local friends and family members and scoured the local area throughout the night, desperately searching for any sign of Anna or any clue as to where she'd gone. And I just thought at this point it must have just been horrific for them because the darkness descends and the night draws in it just puts this in a different context, doesn't it? As a parent, you're just going to be, I think you're going to really start to be panicking at this point because it's just so much more dangerous when it's dark and cold. And It's just so different, isn't it? It's so different. It, someone it is. missing I think during the day and someone missing during the night, it just feels Much worse. more sinister. Yeah. Despite their best efforts, the search turned up nothing. Anna had simply vanished without a trace. The following day, owing to Anna's vulnerability and the mounting concerns for her well-being, the Irish police escalated the investigation and allocated more officers to the search. A press release was issued which appealed directly to the public in the Dublin area to help the police locate Anna. The basic details of her disappearance and a physical description were provided to the media, as well as recent pictures of her. When the lead detective, Sergeant John Dunn, got involved, he immediately decided to pay another visit to Boybee at his home and to press him for further answers. After more intense pressure was applied to the boy, he began to reveal further details that he had not disclosed the day before. He told the detectives that he had called for Anna the previous day on behalf of another 13-year-old boy, who Anna allegedly had a crush on. Sergeant Dunn took note of the other boy's name, as before, due to his young age, we can only legally henceforth refer to him as Boy A. Boy B explained that he'd taken Anna to the park, met with Boy A, hung out with the two of them for a little while, then left them both alone together before heading home at about 20 to 6. With Boy B's parents' permission, Sergeant Dunn took Boy B to St Catherine's Park and asked him to retrace the exact steps he'd taken with Anna during their time there. Boy B obliged and willingly demonstrated to Sergeant Dunn the exact route that he and Anna had walked as they entered the park, the spot where they'd hung out with Boy A, and the route that Boy B had taken to go home after he had allegedly left them both in the park together. And then a peculiar thing happened while they were at the park. As Sergeant Dunn and Boy B were preparing to leave, they were approached by an older man and a young boy who was around the same age as Boy B. The man said that he had heard about Anna's disappearance on the news and urged Sergeant Dunn to check around the back of the local sewage treatment facility as that was a popular hangout spot for local teenagers. Sergeant Dunn thanked the man for his help and carried on his work with Boy B. It wasn't until much later that day that Sergeant Dunn realised that the man whom he'd spoken to was Boy A's father and the youngster who had been with him was Boy A himself. 
So this unsettling coincidence was deeply troubling to Sergeant Dunn, who felt strongly that both boys were being evasive, and that there was still much more to Boy B's story than he was letting on. Boy A was brought in for questioning, and gave a detailed statement as to his involvement with Anna on the day she went missing. He said that Boy B was one of his best friends, and that he had called by his house on the day Anna had gone missing, and asked him to meet him later that afternoon at St Catherine's Park. Boy A agreed and when he got there he was surprised to find Anna there too. Boy A told the police he was aware that Anna had a crush on him but he said he wasn't interested in her. In his statement he explained, At one stage Anna said to me, I have something to ask you, I was wondering if you wanted to go out with me. I was quite surprised it came out of nowhere, I kind of knew she liked me because she'd asked me out before. I said I'm sorry but I'm not interested. She didn't answer, she said nothing. She walked off, she looked annoyed and sad at the same time. Sergeant Dunn decided to take both boys back to the park to retrace their steps once again and to offer a second explanation as to how the events had unfolded. Sergeant Dunn was interested to see whether they would be able to accurately tell the story together without any inconsistencies or slip-ups. Somewhat unsurprisingly, the boys didn't do a very good job. Sergeant Dunn immediately noted that Boy B's route both in and out of the park had changed since the previous day. Furthermore, both boys appeared to be nervous and were observed exchanging concerned glances towards one another as they fumbled their way through a sloppy reconstruction. It was also noticed that Boy A was clearly injured. He had red and grazed knuckles, multiple cuts and scratches on his face and forearms, and he was walking with a limp. When asked what had happened to him, he told the police that he'd been jumped by a group of older boys from another town shortly after leaving the park. His attackers had allegedly knocked him to the ground and kicked him a few times, but had run away when he managed to get back to his feet and throw a few punches of his own. At this stage of the investigation, the police had no evidence whatsoever that a crime had even been committed or that any harm had come to Anna. However, they were deeply sceptical of the story that Boy A and Boy B had provided and decided that further investigation was indeed needed. It must be so hard as well when you think of Anna's parents hearing all this and seeing all this and they're probably being kept in the loop with the police and knowing, like you just would know, wouldn't you, this just isn't right. Yeah, and your worst fear that it was that boy that knocked on for Anna the day before he's involved in this because even if the police or a family liaison officer aren't keeping the family up to date. It's a small community and neighbours and parents of other children at the school, I'm sure, would have been talking. So they would have certainly heard uh, anecdotally what was happening, I'm sure. Elsewhere, the local police organised a rigorous search of the area and urged the public via the media to check gardens, sheds, garages and outhouses for any signs of the missing teenager. Dozens of concerned volunteer civilian searchers also began to show up in the town, offering to assist the police in their search. Meanwhile, detectives were scouring through hours and hours of CCTV footage from the area and from the area around St Catherine's Park on the day that Anna had gone missing. They were looking for video evidence that would corroborate Boy A and Boy B stories. They were especially keen to try and validate Boy A's claim that he'd been attacked by a group of older boys. However, the CCTV footage provided not a single clue. Several witnesses who had been in the park that day came forward and gave statements to the police. Some had observed Anna with the two boys and thought nothing of it. However, not one single person had observed Boy A being beaten up by a gang of older youths, 
and nobody had even seen a gang of older youths in the park around that time. By the end of the 16th of May, almost three days since Anna had vanished, the police began to have significant concerns for her safety and suspected strongly that she had come to significant harm, or worse, that she was dead. The following day, on the 17th of May in 2018, their worst fears were tragically realised. The body of 14-year-old Anastasia Kriegel was discovered by a police officer in an old abandoned derelict farmhouse around a mile from St Catherine's Park. She was found naked and appeared to have been killed by a catastrophic blunt force trauma to the skull. Her clothing and pieces of her iPhone were scattered around the room. Nearby were a cement block and a large stick, both of which were blood-stained. There was also blood staining on the walls and on the carpeted floor, and the blood had clearly come from the many wounds on the girl's body. A long length of industrial strength insulation tape was partially wrapped around her neck. She had three fingers inside the tape, as if she'd been trying to get it off of her. The missing person's inquiry immediately became a murder investigation, and detectives quickly began a deep and detailed forensic search of the entire derelict property. Every inch of that house was examined and catalogued, along with every beer can, cigarette butt and piece of debris that it contained. The pathologist noted that Anna had sustained a staggering number of injuries. There were bruises and lacerations all over her body, the most serious of which was to Anna's head, face and neck. Her eye sockets and jaw were broken and her skull had multiple fractures. Her killer had clearly attacked her with a furious, hateful level of brutal violence. And there was also strong evidence that her killer had unsuccessfully attempted to rape her. I mean... It's always hard when we have to talk about these scenes, but of course, way harder when it's a 14-year-old child. It's just horrific to think of. It is. It's just any crime scene like this is is horrendous. But yeah, you just keep kind of going back to, she's 14. Like, that's, it's, yeah. it's nothing. It's just no age. And as I said, defensive wounds to Anna's hands and arms indicated that she had put up a strong fight to preserve her honour and to save her own life, but she'd ultimately been overpowered and killed. Her death had come swiftly. The pathologist theorised that Anna had been killed a mere 45 minutes after leaving her home. So that whole time her family and friends and loved ones and the police are searching for her. She is laying dead in that abandoned house a mile from the park. The investigation was initially very slow and frustrating. Despite the huge amount of forensic material at the scene, nothing immediately pointed towards a suspect. All the fingerprints and blood belonged to Anna. However, forensic scientists made a grim breakthrough when they examined Anna's top and discovered semen stains. The focus of the investigation immediately returned to the two boys, who quickly became the two prime suspects. The earlier discrepancies in their account meant that the police already had enough reason to suspect them, but they wanted to wait for forensic proof that at least one of them was at the scene. That proof came a few days later, when forensic scientist Island reported that Anna's blood was found on Boy A's boots, which had already been taken by officers investigating the allegation that had been made by him about being assaulted in that park by a group of older youths. The semen on Anna's top also contained Boy A's DNA. The ramifications of this discovery were indeed horrific. 
the murder of Anna Kriegel was shaping up to become the most callous and brutal murder in Ireland's recent criminal history, and the prime suspects in this horrific incident were two 13-year-old boys. A week after Anna's body was found, the police were granted a warrant to arrest both boys, and they remanded them in youth custody, pending ongoing investigations. As the investigation progressed, it was revealed that boy A had a history of violent and aggressive behaviour. He'd been expelled from school for attacking another student and had been placed in a youth detention centre for a period of time. Boy B, on the other hand, was described as a quiet and introverted individual who had no previous history of violence or criminal behaviour. The investigators had a mountain of forensic evidence, but it was all against Boy A. The police knew that Boy B was present when Anna died and they knew he had played a role in bringing her to the abandoned house where she was ultimately killed. However, they also knew that there was a big difference between knowing something and proving it. With zero forensic evidence to link Boy B to the crime, they pressed on for the next best thing, a confession. Boy B was hauled in for a heavy process of interrogation. At first, he stuck staunchly to his original story, repeating what he first told police the previous week, that Boy A had asked him to call on Anna's home and bring her to him in St Catherine's Park so they could talk, and then he said obviously he left Anna and Boy A before going home to do his homework. The obvious problem was that this account was very different to Boy A's version of events, specifically that Boy A had had no idea that Anna was even going to be at the park when he went to meet his friend, Boy B. As the interrogation of both boys progressed, even more glaringly obvious inconsistencies and deceptions began to emerge. It soon seemed as if the boys couldn't agree on anything at all. Even the detail of their own friendship didn't add up. Boy A claimed that Boy B was merely a classmate, whereas Boy B described Boy A as his dearest and closest friend. Either way, both of the boys were clearly hiding something. After more than 10 hours of intense and relentless questioning, Boy B's resolve began to falter and he began to cry. After a few moments he composed himself, looked up at the officers and said, I'm going to retell the story of actually what happened. What I told you before was a lie. Can you imagine being one of the officers in the room at that moment and then shit we're going to find out the truth now yeah i I mean part of me thinks they probably weren't overly surprised because this was 10 hours of relentless questioning it would have been really intense and he'd have probably had an appropriate adult or a parent with him but you know he's kind of on his own he's having to answer these questions that are being put to him and they would have been quite brutal in terms of trying to trip him up and and pointing out the inconsistencies in his story to to make him look like the fool that he is. So I, I'm not surprised that he cracked. I'm surprised it took so long. But yeah, I'm I'm not really that surprised. Maybe they were, but whatever the case, they would have absolutely been relieved. Boy B went on to explain how, after meeting in the park, he, Boy A and Anna had walked to the abandoned house just to hang out, but also to give Anna and Boy A time to be alone together. He said that when they got there, Boy A went into the house with Anna. He explained, I left and that's when I heard the scream, and then I ran. It was a really strong scream. I knew that it was Anna, but since Boy A was there, I figured she'd be fine, that he'd protect her. The scream was, like, really loud. Just before it ended, it got muffled, like someone covered her mouth. After telling the police that he'd known all along that something terrible had indeed happened to Anna and that he'd lied to protect his closest friend, he broke down completely and sobbed. 
Undeterred and dissatisfied, the police simply gave Boy B a break before bringing him back for even more intense questioning, pressing him further and further until he eventually gave up more of the story. This culminated in Boy B changing his account yet again. After six rounds of lengthy and relentless questioning, Boy B told officers that Boy A had approached him a few days prior to Anna's murder and told him that he wanted to kill someone. Initially, Boy B hadn't taken his best friend seriously and assumed he was joking. However, when Boy B asked Boy A who he wanted to kill, Boy A had specifically mentioned Anna Kriegel. He also revealed that, contrary to what both he and Boy A had told the police in their earlier statements, neither he, Boy A or Anna had even set foot in St Catherine's Park that night. From Anna's home, they had gone directly to the old abandoned house where Boy A lay in wait. It's just so, so chilling, calculated. isn't it? The idea that this kid's gone, I want to do this. And then the other kid's gone, okay, I'll bring her to you. Yeah, it's both, both fucked oh. up. I mean, su- such echoes of the Ollie Stevens murder for me here. And we, t- we mentioned Ollie's name at the top of the episode. Boy B concluded his latest confession by describing the harrowing events that had unfolded in that abandoned house, telling the police that Anna had gone into the house with Boy A. Despite being told to leave by Boy A, Boy B decided to explore the rest of the house. Then the sound of shuffling made him run to the room where Anna was. He then said he saw Boy A violently pinning Anna to the ground whilst choking her and pulling her clothes off. He added that during her ordeal, Anna was crying and saying, no, no, don't do this. It's just so hard to get through. Boy B said at this point, both Boy A and Anna turned to look at him in the doorway. He said Anna had a desperate, terrified look on her face that seemed to plead for help, whereas Boy A had a blank, emotionless and cold expression. According to Boy B, the sight of this was deeply frightening and he ran away. Detectives felt strongly that this new account still wasn't the full truth, but it was as close as they were going to get in the limited time for which they could detain him. When the police confronted Boy A with everything Boy B had told them, he of course strenuously denied it all, insisting that Boy B was lying. It didn't matter though, detectives already had an overwhelming amount of forensic evidence which placed him firmly at the scene. In addition to Anna's blood being on his shoes, Boy A's bedroom had been searched by the police. They discovered what would later be dubbed Boy A's murder pack, a backpack containing shin pads, gloves, a Halloween-style mask, and more damningly, a roll of industrial-strength tape that was identical to the tape which was wrapped around Anna's neck when she was killed. All of the items contained within the murder pack were forensically examined, and it came as little surprise to the police when it was revealed that Anna's blood had been discovered on every single item. Boy A's internet search history, whilst in itself not a direct link to Anna's killing, alluded to the fact that he was a deeply disturbed individual, with a fascination for the macabre. He'd also searched for violent and illegal pornography, and attempted to clear his history not long afterwards. The police had both of Anna's babyface killers banged to rights. The trial of Boy A and Boy B began on the 30th of April in 2019 in the Central Criminal Court of Ireland. The trial lasted seven weeks and was one of the most high-profile trials in Irish history. Throughout the entire proceedings, both Boy A and Boy B sat in the dock next to their mothers, often being observed holding their hands for comfort and reassurance. During the trial, the prosecution presented a compelling case against the two boys, 
They argued that boy A and boy B had lured Anna to the derelict house in Lucan, where they had brutally assaulted and murdered her. The defence for boy A and boy B argued that there was no direct evidence linking the boys to Anna's murder. They suggested that another person, who had not been identified by the police, may have been responsible for the crime. The overwhelming forensic evidence against Boyer made rubbish of such a weak argument. And it's just another example of just a really shit defence, whether it's a barrister coming up with this defence or the perpetrator coming up with just a really shit defence. No one's going to buy it. And there's also loads of forensic evidence to the contrary anyway. But a jury wouldn't have bought that. Yeah, sometimes you just go... You may as well just not even bother. Don't even bother, yeah. yeah. this is just nonsense. About midway through the trial, Boy A dropped a bombshell by changing his plea to guilty and making a full confession to all charges to a child psychologist. And it's likely that he was encouraged to do this by his lawyer, who, sensing imminent defeat, began lobbying for a more lenient sentence instead of a not guilty verdict. In the end, the jury found both boys guilty of Anna's murder. Boyer was also found guilty of aggravated sexual assault. The boys were sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 12 years for boy A and 15 years for boy B. And there is a real disparity in those sentences. All I can think is that boy B has received a greater sentence because he lured Anna to her death. And And also he hasn't pleaded guilty. I suppose. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. Maybe the guilty plea takes off a big chunk. I think it probably has done. And he's been found guilty of her murder. So wh- whether he was directly responsible or not, he was, um, he's been found guilty of being culpable, as culpable as Boyer. The murder of Anna Kriegel shocked the Irish nation and sparked a national conversation about youth violence and the need for better mental health services for young people. The case also highlighted the importance of early intervention in cases where young people display aggressive or violent behaviour. In the aftermath of the trial, Anna's parents spoke out about their grief and the impact that their daughter's murder had had on their family. They also expressed their hope that the case would lead to positive changes in Irish society, including greater awareness of mental health issues among young people and better support for families affected by violent crime. Anna Kriegel's funeral took place on the 31st of May in 2018 at Newlands Cross Crematorium in Dublin. Her family requested that mourners wear sparkling colour in Anna's memory and that a donation be made to the Russian Irish Adoption Group, the agency that had helped facilitate Anna's original adoption in 2006. A Russian flag and a traditional Martyroshka doll were placed on a coffin. After the trial, her parents spoke outside the court. Her father, Patrick, said, Anna was our strength. Then her mother, Geraldine, added, Anna was a dream come true for us, and she always will be. She will stay in our hearts, forever loved and forever cherished. We love you, Anna. It's just such it's a, just sad, a beautiful sad story. Tribute. What a beautiful thing for us to finish on from her mum. But this case just, oh, it, it just makes me so, so angry. There's some cases, aren't there, that, that stick with you in this it's just horrible. Yeah. I think it's often the case whenever whenever it's a child perpetrator, it's yeah, it just just destroys the faith that you have really in that innocence of childhood, which is unfair because of course the vast, vast majority of children are these amazing young people and yeah, these examples are the absolute exception, but it yeah, it just kind of makes you question everything. 
Thank you for listening and um, we will be back next week for another episode. So we will see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.